0: This morning, uh, Shada had uh, uh, suggested for a theme for the evening talk to speak a little bit this evening with you with regard to some of the traditional um, uh, expressions and um, essential core elements of uh, Dharma uh, teachings. And I've just come from um, an hour-long meeting with the staff uh, here and I don't quite know how it happened but for um, one reason or another they got me to ramble on about my past for uh, a little while and so it seems a bit appropriate that Shada's mentioning the tradition and then I was uh, speaking about life with uh, shaved head and wearing brown curtains Uh, (laughs) and (laughs) 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 that's what my father thought anyway (laughs) 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 and one of the, the movement of Uh, the years and of the centuries, there is a serious consideration, of course, taking place to find ways and means to adapt teachings to contemporary situations. And while doing that, endeavor correspondingly to remain true to a tradition of a hundred generations of two and a half thousand uh, years which has its only authentic expression, not in temples and monasteries and candles and incense and Buddha images, but its authentic expression is only to be found in the hearts and minds of human beings. The rest is all minor and secondary to that. And ways that the teachings and practices and application can find in this contemporary setting And so what I would like to touch upon with you uh, this evening, some of the the core features, and how specifically that relates to the immediacy of this here-and-now situation. And you will have heard in various uh, forms, or perhaps have read, of the (coughs) original spark, which was said and recorded to have taken place two and a half thousand years ago in this little village outside of Gaya, now called Bodh Gaya where this man, Siddhartha Gautama, having undergone a six year quest to find out what the truth of things uh, was, came to a a point where having explored everything and anything which was uh, available had perhaps reached almost a point with some maybe tone of resignation, I'm not sure, in which he sat down and then he reflected back on some of the limitations of what he had experienced. And he said he had been with teachers and he had deep experiences of meditation, profound altered states of consciousness and these altered states of consciousness had of course a significant impact upon his mind his way of looking but there was a hitch there was a glick in all of that and the essential problem in what he experienced was I go into a state I experience a state and then I come out of it and then I do this, that and the other whatever it might be in his life as a sadhu, as a renunciate as a homeless one I then enter back into the field of meditation I go into that and I come out of it and the teachers the two teachers had said, said to him, yes you have had the most transcendent experience and we want you, or I want you, in case of each teacher, to teach what I teach, you will share the same platform as I share, and you will point to that transcendent experience, that transcendent liberation, and show the way to others the same thing. And the thought that was Siddhartha Gautama said it was in his mind, what is it to discover that in which there's no going into and coming out of. He couldn't be satisfied with a going into and a a departure from. No matter how profound, deep, expansive, opening, and transpersonal, transcendental it felt to be, compared to the ordinary and the everyday world. And so he he, he couldn't rest there. You couldn't stay with those teachers on that particular point. And yet what he knew was meditation, what he knew was life of the sadhu, home, homeless life. He then said sat under the tree and in sitting under the tree he remembered an event from the time when he was 12 years of age of the experience of happiness sitting under a tree and a sense of well-being, natural attention, natural concentration. And he asked himself, he's recounting all of this in the text, in a conversation with his close friend Saraputra, you know, just kind of reminiscing in the same meandering way that probably I was 20 <laughs> minutes ago. <laughs> and in recalling with Saraputra, he said he recalled this period of when he was a, a boy and sitting under a tree, and he asked himself, in the tree in Bodhigaya, could this be the way to unexcelled liberation in which there is no going into and coming out of? And even today, as you know and will have heard, or whatever, that there are still plenty of teachings taking place in the Buddhist tradition, as well as others, which say uh, you go in and out of the ultimate. Still, the eye thought, moving and thinking along those lines. So he sat, he he said, uh, under the tree, while sitting under the tree, what stood out unusually and exceptionally clearly, nothing that special. But what stood out was not only the finding of freedom in which there's no going into and coming out of, but also those issues of life which really matter to a human being. And he saw the common humanity profoundly clearly, and it probably shook him from head to toes through his own experience and through his perceptions of life in North India. And what he saw and and realised that human beings are frequently concerned with the issue of suffering in life. From the mildest dissatisfaction to the greatest agitation and unrest to the forces of the ego, human beings are concerned with it through identification with it, through the grasping onto it, through the clinging or whatever. And he used what might be described as a fairly um, odd form of language because he said, Here's a situation of four noble truths of life. And to really reiterate, to really get it across when he began teaching. Firstly, that there is suffering in life. And then, he, as he often did, in the style of teaching form, he would throw out a statement and then would say like, there is suffering in life, and then would say, what is suffering? And then would come the response, would come the answer. Suffering is not getting what I want. Suffering is losing what I have. Suffering is being separated from whom or what I'm uh, attached to. Uh, Suffering is holding and clinging to body, feelings, perceptions, thoughts, and consciousness or awareness. Suffering is bound up in not getting what I want, losing what I have, being separated from who and what I love, clinging and holding to this activity of heart, mind and body. And then he said, what's the causes for all of this? And of course one could take numerous causes, political causes, conditions, economic ones, environmental ones and so forth. And so he spoke of the whole field of dependent arising factors which contribute to suffering. Dependent arising. And one which he highlighted, I think, I believe, for a certain ease. So that everyday human, ordinary, everyday mind who is concerned with the resolution of suffering, he took one particular factor which he said will be in there in any form of suffering. And one factor which will be in there is the force of desire, the force of wanting. And when you think of situations in your life where there's pain, anguish, anxiety and uh, happiness, where one feels trapped or stuck, where there's fighting against or resistance to, where there's demands upon yourself, upon others, whatever it is, in all of that complexity sometimes which is going on in our lives and in our lives in relationship to other lives, one of the factors there which will be present will be influencing is the degree and the force of desire. And it's generated over the centuries a tremendous amount of confusion and misunderstanding because People often hear, oh my gosh, and those who do meditation practice, they are trying to become desire less. <laughs> and how can one become desire less through desire? How can one say, I desire to become desireless? And it obviously creates all manner of complexity of Confusion intellectually, uh, logically, and so forth. The word desire, long-standing problem for people in contemporary practice and for traditions, means the movement of the mind which wants, which contributes to suffering and ends in suffering. Desire of itself, in Dharma language, for moment, is that movement of wanting, which contributes to suffering, which comes from suffering sometimes in itself as the thread of suffering. Rather unfortunately, you and I, we often will say, um, use the word desire in a much broader sense, one might say, this evening at um, 10 minutes past seven, I had uh, the desire to come in here and give the evening uh, talk And you had the desire to come and uh, listen to it or perhaps you couldn't think of anything else better to do or whatever. Everyday language is a language we use desire. But Dharma language, desire means the action which contributes to suffering. So as an example, if you're in here and you just expressed the wish to be here uh, uh, at this particular time, then... It's not desire. There's just the intention followed through to be here. If, of course, after listening for a few minutes and then the exit signs glowing in neon lights for you or whatever it might be and then you're afraid to get up and leave, you're afraid to do anything else or whatever or there's a strong desire to to get out of here, then all of that which is going on inside of oneself is desire creating suffering, resisting listening, feeling bored, getting upset, getting agitated or whatever. So just activity of life, going from A to B in this case, doesn't make it desire in Dharma language. You you and I might use the language I desire to sit here continue talking but actually I am sitting here, I am talking. So the movement of desire has a relationship to something unsatisfactory and therefore our responsibility, our awareness together and individually is to look at the force of desire, of the wanting mind and what it generates for oneself and for others. When the wanting mind is infected, shall we say, with enough conditioning, enough identification with, and enough repetition, the force of the desire is called an addiction. Understand? There is a force of desire. Sometimes for you and I, it arises briefly in a circumstance. It might repeat itself in a circumstance. But when the desire for the same thing is repeating itself again and again. The I is, gets stronger and stronger. I want, I want, I want, I need, I must have. The desire is in the walls of the ego. The identification with it gets stronger and stronger. And that identification, the addictive factor, will produce the grasping onto something. So it's desire, identification with grasping onto something and the human problem of existence is bound up with that movement whether it's personal social national or whatever we think of any situation in life where there's human suffering is involved heart and mind that doesn't necessarily mean pain in the body pain and suffering two words are have separate applications. Where there is human suffering taking place, we won't be able to divorce it from some element and factor in life of desire, identification with, holding and relationship to results. You and I know that in some cases, if we take loss as one of the major forms of suffering in life where we've been with a, a person, we've spent time uh, with a person we've known a person, we've shared a lot of experiences with that person and then there is the loss and that person will never again be back in our life we never talk to that person again, never feel that person's contact with that person and so the history of memory and association will come through and we'll feel pain, we'll feel anguish, we'll feel the separation, we'll feel the, the, the grief. The, de- the intensity and the degree of it will be according to the degree of identification, the degree of holding and, and the degree of wanting, wanting the person to be back, wanting to have been different oneself and all the guilt feelings that can, a- can arise wanting to have said i should have said this i should have communicated this to this person all that that can go through in the condition of loss and the mind humanly enough moves and there is wanting there and all the disappointment that can take place hard truth of it is that there is still desire which is taking place Still the movement, and as the Buddha said, how easily the movement lends itself towards, and he used three words successively, grief, lamentation, and despair. Grief, lamentation, and despair. And sometimes we can feel in ourselves where there's deep sorrow and deep grief that if we're not suffering, and if we're not wanting and desiring the person to be back, because of whatever the circumstances are, then sometimes it shows to us, oh well, per- perhaps I didn't really love the person. I didn't really care for the person. Because if I really cared, I'd be showing much more grief and much more regret and much more sorrow and much more unhappiness. And we get confused with love and beholding. Love and attachment. Love and desiring and wanting. Love is love. Not a desire. It is love. And yet we kind of bring into the love demanding. And we get confused with love and with attachment. With love and with holding. So the first noble truth that there is suffering in this world and incidentally the Buddha never ever said life is suffering. This is a, a, a monstrous one-liner that's been passed on through successive generations and there's not a single statement in the text which say that anywhere. It has to say Dukkha Ben Jivit Ben Dukkha Jivit means the life. Life is suffering. No, nowhere is that to be, to be found. And if that was the case, that life is suffering, that's it, then there can be no liberation. There can be no path. There can be no way. There can be no teachings because life is suffering. And that's it. It's the absolute state, the absolute ultimate and one and only condition. And never as those teachings ever come out of liberated heart and mind and as I commented once, it sounds like to me the one-liner of depressed monks. <laughs> <laughs> and even they, I'd like to say, are the rare exception And from the life in the monastery in the monks' days, the joy and the happiness and the good spirit and the camaraderie and the shared values and, and uh, way, way of life just uh, ridiculed and negated the notion life, life is suffering as you and I know so there's suffering in life there's the causes and conditions for suffering desire, clinging, holding, identification with and attachment and then comes the cessation of it and quite often the thought does arise, it's impossible. No, no human being can be liberated from suffering. The thought arises, it, 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 there's no evidence for it, etc. And, and that thought can have, can have some influence, either uh, on one's own way of looking at life, or on the way of life of looking at, uh, looking at others, no matter who that person uh, might be. In all, all of that, the teachings of the cessation of suffering is the same teachings as liberation, as enlightenment, as uh, freedom, um, emptiness, realizing of emptiness, which makes all things possible. And teachings keep pointing to, to that. And the pointing to that, as you've been exploring during the days as we have, is something which is much more immediate than the mind can dare to comprehend. Can dare to comprehend. To give you the sense of what I mean by that is if uh, the Buddha had said, the four noble truths are, there there is suffering, there are the causes for suffering, there is the path to suffering, and then there is liberation or enlightenment or realizing the liberating truth, whatever there, I would and others would have had doubt in the authenticity and the realization of the Buddha. Because that would be the logical order. There is suffering, there is causes for suffering, there is the path to develop to end suffering and therefore the fourth of the noble truth is the result, the effect of the third, if it was in that order. We do the path, we do the practice, and when we've done the path, we've done the practice, we come to the end of suffering. It's in a logical way to look at it. There is the suffering, and it's logical to say, well, why? Well, these are the causes. And how do we come to the end? Well, we practice the way to stop it, and then we get to the stop. If that was the case, then the Buddha would not have been the Buddha he knew and he realized and he understood there was no way that he could put the path before the goal no matter what the mind says no way that that can be done it would have been a disservice to himself and shown the mind of an unrealized human being I said what does that mean? Why, why is that? it comes back to the central point is that in the immediacy of things immediate liberation is immediately discoverable it's immediately realisable it's to be sensed, it's to be known it's to be felt, it's it's to be lived and when the human being says I'm not free I still have this, that, whatever it might be in my life I'm not free then, on the point of being not free, if one says that to oneself, then one says, why not? Why aren't I free? Why aren't I a free human being? It's my human right. It's my, 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 my birthright. It's my true state of being. It's the, it's the authentic statement of realized awareness. Why aren't I free human being, and the outcome of that being love and joy and friendship and kindness and happiness is a natural outburst of liberation. And then one said, I'm not, then one says, okay, then I look at the eightfold path. Once, only if I am not free. No need to look at it, if one isn't. If one is, but if one isn't, then one looks at it and says, okay, when I look at each of those factors of the Eightfold Path, are there any which I need to address? Be serious with. Look at carefully. Because in any one of those or desire, there may be things going on which I don't realize I'm holding or stuck with. They're not being addressed. And I need to address them to take the desire, as I defined it, out of the situation the ego out of the situation, the clinging out of the situation. I need to open that area up more clearly. So Opening area up means it's right thing to do, right understanding, right speech, right action, right effort, right awareness, right meditation or whatever. I need to open that area up, not for anything else, but in order that I can come back to the here and now and say, What is this freedom? the finest freedom of life, which is our authentic being, which we know. We know it's got warped and distorted and perverted and and social political forces try to manipulate it and all all of that, forgetting all of that. And so to a considerable degree here, each and every one of us, through our presence and our practices, through all that's taking place, is either directly or indirectly looking at each one of those factors of the Eightfold Path. And so it's a simple formulation, reasonably easy to remember, in which there are eight links, and one says, I need to address these links. Not to address them is to overlook so sometimes, if we take livelihood as one example, it takes up many hours of our life, many days of our week, many points of our existence. And quite naturally, if there are issues around livelihood which are taking place, they might reveal themselves during the time here. And quite often when they reveal themselves, it's because there is some, something unhappy about it is something problematic, something unresolved, as some of you have been speaking and referring to in inquiries in small, small groups. And one knows that needs to be addressed. And one wants to have it clear for one reason only, so it's not a problem in one's life. And thereby, by having a relationship to livelihood which is not a problem, it allows us to more wholeheartedly turn our attention back to find out, what is this liberation? What is this freedom? And the, in the interrelationship of the four noble truths, which all hang together, there that in that interrelationship which takes place, something happens, and there's the, the Buddha referred to. The person of practice looks at each of those links at the eightfold path, and some of times there are some of them we don't need to look at. Here we're certainly looking a great deal at right awareness, which is the seventh. We're certainly looking a great deal at um, uh, right samadhi, right depth of meditation, which is the eighth. We're certainly looking in care into to speech, into thought and attitudes, which are the second, into right understanding, and the indirect way, as I mentioned, with um, livelihood. We're certainly looking at, at effort in life both here, its application and also finding ourselves uh, in uh, uh, other ways reflecting on what are we putting an effort to in other areas of our life so in different ways, quite tangibly each of those links does begin to stand out for us at particular times in realisation in realising the liberated life a free life, an enlightened life living with God, living with truth however we speak or don't formulate it, the Eightfold Path becomes the Noble Eightfold Path. Because it's a noble human being. So we practice the Eightfold Path, look at all of those to see what's holding up liberation, what's holding up a free and enlightened life. We explore that, we address that, we're serious about that and and heartful about that, and humorous about that, using all the deep, lovely feeling things of life, as well as intuitions and exploration, in order to find our freedom. And the expression of freedom is what? The living of the noble eightfold path. Free human being lives that. Can't, Not a question of choice, just lives it as a natural outflow, a natural expression of life. So it's suffering in the world, causes for suffering, liberation, cessation, the realization of that, and the Noble Eightfold Path as the fourth Noble Truth, a manifestation out of the third. But then sometimes people say, does that mean that I have to exhaust every little drop of suffering in my existence, every little fear, every little agitation, every little possessiveness, every little greed, every little negativity, (laughs) and most of all, that unstoppable train of thinking, thinking, thinking. And when I've exhausted all of that, then I'll be ready to be here and now, then I'll be ready to see this natural state of being which is called liberation and enlightened life or whatever. And the teachings have made it very, very clear the answer that is unequivocally no. No. So that in other words, there can be that seeing which is free, which is freeing, which is liberating, or that I spoke of, and at times, some measure of suffering with desire can arise in spite of the freedom. The world is a vast and inexplicable field. And it can arise and it can show itself as greed, as fear, as anger, as upset, as anxiety, as clinging, as desire, or whatever way. But the f- and the feature of that as... Uh, the Buddha um, pointed out, is two things. One is such a person who is realized and yet time to time these things, unsatisfactory things, stand out. One is he or she can't, can't, can't hide it. It's out there. And the other which goes with it that the immediate responses, inwardly, is to explore its resolution that one has no interest to pursue and sustain clinging, possessiveness, fear, jealousy, um, anger, ego in any form. One has no wish to do it, it's just the pattern is there, the old karma is there, it hasn't exhausted itself, it appears in the, in the moment. It's impacting on that freedom here and now. One knows it very cl- well and very, very clearly. And one's intention and interest is to address it. Not to justify it. Not to protect it. Not to defend it. Not to deny it. But to uh, address it. And so it doesn't, as it were, take one away from a natural sense of freedom of life. In a a way, an extraordinary way, one begins to know and understand that natural sense of freedom even is freedom to be caught in a negativity. And even needs the freedom sometimes to be caught up in a desire. Caught up in agitation or impatience or, or aggression or whatever. And Yet, as I say, everything inwardly is working to dissolve that. One has no interest whatsoever to perpetuate in life the forces of greed, negativity, and self-delusion. When there's that realization, or understanding, or seeing, or acknowledgement, whatever we might call it, and there is no going back to the old, One knows one can never go back to mundane, um, self-centred existence as a kind of lifestyle one can never go go back to believing in every movement of mind as though it's the absolute truth of one's experience or whatever one knows one can't go back in that way that in Dharma metaphor language when there's realisation, yet in spite of disturbances time to time, it's called stream entry. It is called turning the corner in uh, English metaphor language. It means that there's no falling back into the old. One knows that. And that's, as I say, normal state of sense and feeling, experience of life is free life with occasional interruption which the buddha said whether he's speaking actually factually or metaphorically or or whatever said even that which is still sticking around he said won't stick around for seven lifetimes that was uh, seven life seven lifetimes you can take it l- literal if you like taking stuff like that literally or just means that it's got a limited cycle it's getting exhausted it might take seven years, or seven days, or seven minutes, seven lifetimes, it doesn't matter. But it's got, it, one knows and is clear that it's arising, it's appearing, but it's going towards exhaustion. And one has a sense for that. It's losing its grip over consciousness and over existence. And that not only pays tremendous tribute and credit to ourselves of, of course in the wonderful capacity of the human mind to free itself from being stuck in the painful and the suffering uh, life but also it's surely the greatest service that we can provide for others as well and afterwards the human being may say, may say oh this person is very kind or this person is very compassionate Oh, this person is very friendly and you and I know people who we would speak of in that way. But it's only a language and a description which we use towards others. How many of us could ever feel comfortable by saying, I'm a very kind person? (laughs) Do you know I am one of the most compassionate people (laughs) I have ever met? You know, what even the most outrageous I, and there are plenty of them, (laughs) would hesitate (laughs) to say that? Why is the I so hesitant to say, I am one of the most mindful people that's ever been to IMS? The eye is naturally very concerned about the audacity to associate itself with something deep and profound. It hesitates to go where angels fear to tread. One doesn't mind saying I'm really moody, (laughs) irritable. I'm really pissed off with life. The eye feels utterly comfortable. Everybody feels happy with that. But when anything which is deep and profound, it's very cautious. And therefore, love is not of eye. Compassion is not of I, Joy is not of I, Liberation is not of I, Enlightenment is not of I. And thus I is just a little bit for language. So let us discover that which is not of I. May your beings live with insight. May your beings live with realization. May all beings share our original nature.